Good morning. Welcome again to our worship service this morning here at Grace Bible Fellowship. Good to see you all come out. Such a fitting set of songs that were sung this morning. Speaking of Christ's death, payment for our sins. And works really well in preparing our hearts for the preaching of God's word this morning as we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. And the title of my sermon this morning is The Suffering Servant, part two. Last time I preached in this passage was part one. And so we're continuing on in that. In our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, is as follows, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And we continue our time in First Peter today looking at this powerful text of Scripture, a text that highlights the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. A doctrine that, as we will see, is vital to the Christian gospel. Charles Spurgeon notes of the atonement, those who set aside the atonement as a satisfaction for sin also murder the doctrine of justification by faith. They must do so. There is a common element which is the essence of both doctrines, so that if you deny the one, you destroy the other. In another quote, he says, We will not cease, dear brethren, in our ministry, most definitely and decidedly to preach the atoning sacrifice. And I will tell you why I shall be sure to do so. I have not personally a shadow of a hope of salvation from any other quarter. I am lost if Jesus is not my substitute. And so we see... How important many take this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ being our substitute. And this morning we will see, we will look at three effects of Christ's suffering for Christians as we consider the atonement. Three effects of Christ's suffering for Christians as we consider the atonement. We will see Christ, the suffering servant, as our standard and as our substitute and as our shepherd. And I've broken that up on the outline that you've received this morning into those three points. Our first point, Christ is our standard. So when Christ suffered as the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks of, he suffered as our standard. He sets a standard for us. Now some of this in this section will be repeat of my last sermon, where we also looked at the suffering servant and how we are to suffer unjust treatment and persecution often as Christians in this world. 
we will be mistreated and how Christ sets that example for us. But it flows so well into the next portion here and really is combined, verses 21 to 25, as one long sentence, one long statement. And so as part of a summary or or looking back at what we looked at last time I preached in this text, we will look at those verses here again and see how it leads us into the other sections. So chapter 2, verse 21 to 23 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter begins this section in verse 21 by stating, For to this you have been called. So what is this referring to? To what have Christian servants been called? Here he is referring to the unjust suffering that Christian slaves faced at the hands of their masters. The cruelty many of them would have had to endure graciously for the sake of Christ. We have been called to unjust suffering so that we may follow in Jesus' footsteps. As Peter said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. The word example is what is referred to as a stencil, as a pattern. It was used by children in the ancient times, and today as well, but then, when this word was used, as a pattern used to learn how to trace letters, how to draw, how to, how to write. And so what Peter is saying here is that we are as Christians called to trace Jesus' footsteps. We are to follow the, the steps that he has laid out before us. And as Juan Sanchez in his commentary notes, where Jesus stepped, we step. And his steps take us through the path of unjust suffering. Peter teaches here that the purpose of Christ's example is for us to imitate him. How he reacted to unjust suffering as the God-man on earth. His suffering, or unjust suffering, sorry, is not a sign necessarily that we have done something wrong. So if we suffer persecution unjustly, it's not something that we must then consider, what did I do to deserve this? But it's, A matter of seeing this pattern that Christ set for us. He suffered unjustly, setting an example. But then he also set the example for us how to live in that and how to respond. The New Testament is clear that for those who desire to follow Jesus and to pursue holiness, suffering will be a reality in this life. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, 34 to 35, Mark 8, 34 to 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Tracing Jesus' footsteps, being a true follower of Christ, will lead to unjust suffering for Christians. 
Comfort and Christianity are very often incompatible. And if we imitate Christ, we will suffer. And as such, we must learn how to suffer well. We must learn how to suffer as he did and how to follow in his footsteps in that regard. Verse 22, he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So when Jesus, the only truly innocent man to have ever been born and to live on this earth, when he was persecuted, when he was caused to suffer, he committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter is borrowing here from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, and we would do well to turn there and maybe even leave a a bookmark or your ribbon in Isaiah as this whole passage that we're looking at today keeps going back to that. In Isaiah 53, Verse 9, Isaiah writes, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. So prophet Isaiah is prophesying here many years before Christ walked this earth. He's prophesying this reaction, though he had done no violence. Isaiah uses violence not to, to uh, illustrate a single act of violence, but to signify sin. Though he had done no violence, though he had not sinned, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, is without sin. And this is important. He is without sin. Hebrews 4.15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is without sin. Jesus suffered and died at the hands of lawless man, yet he is without sin. He did not respond in a spiteful way. He did not react in any way which was sinful. Even deceit was not found in his mouth. Not a word spoken from his mouth while he was being tortured, while he suffered, that could have been deemed as sinful. We know that our hearts are often revealed through the words of our mouth. Yet even in this area, where we as humans struggle the most with our speech, when we feel that we've been treated unjustly, when we have been mistreated, when we suffer, even in that area, Jesus was without sin. And if we are to imitate him and suffer as he did, then there is no excuse for us to respond in a sinful manner. There is no excuse for us to respond with sinful speech. There is no excuse for us. We fail. But this is the standard that Christ has set. Verse 23, Peter says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He did not verbally threaten or lash out against those who were causing his suffering. 
Instead, Jesus faced his suffering and death with blameless character. Isaiah records in chapter 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah's suffering servant opened not his mouth, though facing death, agony, he opened not his mouth. Peter says he did not revile. The natural thing for us to do in unjust circumstances is to lash out at those who we deem to be responsible for the suffering we face. It is easy to fall into the trap of thinking we deserve better than this. Yet Christ, the only truly innocent man to have ever lived, faced the most wicked and cruel suffering at the hands of wicked men. And yet he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. This is the example we are to imitate. These are the footsteps put in front of us to trace. MacArthur writes in his commentary on this passage, As a sovereign, omnipotent Son of God, and the creator and sustainer of the universe, Jesus could have blasted his cruel, unbelieving enemies into eternal hell with one word from his mouth. Eventually, those who never repented and believed in him would be sent to hell, but for this time he endured with no retaliation to set an example for believers. Jesus submitted to those who were causing his suffering and even asked God to forgive them. And he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This means to commit or hand over. Jesus committed or handed over himself to God, his perfect, to God and his perfect plan and will. What strengthened Jesus' acceptance of the suffering that he was facing was his unbreakable confidence in the perfect plan of God and his ability to accomplish his will in all things. John 4.34 writes, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will. This is what Christ came to do. To accomplish the will of the Father. And so he knew what the will of God was in regards to his suffering and his death. And so he stood resolutely in that. Knowing that he was doing what he was sent to do by the Father. Jesus knew God would vindicate him, and he knew that his suffering was all part of God's decretive will to accomplish his perfect plan of salvation. In fact, let's turn to John chapter 17, the Gospel of John in chapter 17. The first five verses... John writes, and when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus knew that even his suffering was for a purpose. For God to accomplish salvation. And so he entrusted himself to God, to the God of the universe, and trusted the sovereign plan of God to be accomplished and for God to be glorified. This is what Christ looked to when he was facing persecution and suffering. He looked to God, entrusted himself to God. He trusted the plan of God, and he knew that God would accomplish the glorification of the name of God. And by this, as the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus became our standard in persecution. He has set the example for us to follow in how we react to unjust treatment. How we respond when this world, authorities, masters, and institutions may oppress us as Christians. But Christ's suffering accomplished something that ours never could. Though we too suffer as we follow his footsteps, his suffering accomplished something our suffering could not accomplish. Yes, he is our standard in suffering. But the suffering servant, Christ, was also our substitute. And this takes us to our next point in First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Christ is our substitute. So in First Peter chapter 2, verse 24... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Here we get to the heart of the gospel. The essence of this good news is that Jesus did something for us. Because you see, no matter how much we suffer, We have only received that which we are due. The wages of sin is death. We could not pay this price, and so Christ had to do something for us. Peter said in verse 21, we read that Christ suffered for you. This is what Christ did. He suffered for us, setting an example or a pattern that we are to follow But not only did he set the standard we already looked at, but he suffered as our substitute. He took our place. If you are a child of God this morning, Christ stood in your place and faced the wrath of God on your behalf so that you might be a child of God. We jump back to Isaiah. Peter here again is borrowing the language of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. This time let's look at verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Then jump down to verse 11. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, Peter summarizes what the prophet Isaiah has said. One commentary noted on this passage. Here again I say it is the heart of the Christian gospel, the great doctrine of substitution. That is that Christ was our substitute in dying as basic is basic to our faith. In fact, we could safely say that all other elements of salvation merely surround this great core truth. The heart of the gospel, that Christ took our place, he received the chastisement for our iniquities on him. Though we are often astounded by many who reject this clear biblical doctrine, it nevertheless is all the more true because the word of God says that he took our sin. He did not die just to be an example. He did not die just to set an example of how we are to love. He did all those things. We saw he set an example. But he suffered and died to pay for our sin. He suffered and died to take the chastisement of God upon himself in our stead so that we didn't have to face it. John MacArthur quotes writer Leon Morris in his commentary. where Leon Morris wrote, Redemption is substitutionary, for it means that Christ paid that price that we could not pay. He paid it in our stead, and we go free. Justification interprets our salvation judicially, and as the New Testament sees it, Christ took our legal liability and took it in our stead. Reconciliation means that the making of people to be at one by the taking away of the cause of hostility In this case, the cause is sin, and Christ removed that cause for us. We could not deal with sin, says Morris. And he continues, he could and did. And did it in such a way that it is reckoned to us. Propitiation points us to the removal of the divine wrath, and Christ has done this by bearing the wrath for us. It was our sin that drew it down, and it was he who bore it. Was there a price to be paid? He paid it. Was there a victory to be won? He won it. Was there a penalty to be borne? He bore it. Was there a judgment to be faced? He faced it. End quote. We see that all aspects of the gospel, no matter what we talk about, our redemption, our justification, our regeneration, our sanctification, all is summed up in talking about the substitution. All of them come out from looking at the substitution of Christ in a biblical manner. And the Apostle Paul makes this plain in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. A verse you're all familiar with, I am sure. But Paul says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus Christ, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. 
God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin in our place. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul also says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ became a curse for us in order to redeem us from this curse. You see, cursed is everyone who does not keep the whole law. We may look at the law and think that we're doing well. But out of everything, Paul says, and he repeats what is written, what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, that if we do not keep, if we fail in keeping the law in one part, one part, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. And when we stand before God in judgment, and no matter what we have done, how good we have done, if we have broken that law in one part, and rest assured, we all have, the full weight of God's judgment will come down on us as we will face His wrath for eternity. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us. So when Christ hung on that cross, the curse of the law, the curse that was due us for breaking that law, was placed on Him. And God's wrath was poured out on Him. You see, Peter said, He, Jesus Christ, bore our sin. He bore our sin. This means that Christ carried the weight of our sin. Christ carried the weight of our sin, took it upon himself, he bore it, and he suffered the penalty for all the sins of all who would ever be forgiven by receiving the wrath of God that we deserved. And he took that upon himself. He became sin who knew no sin and redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. So when we trust in Christ alone as, <coughs> excuse me, our sin is transferred onto him. While he was on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out onto his only son, Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of Christ was then transferred to us. So in the same manner that God will punish Christ for our sin, or that he did punish Christ for our sin, in the same manner, we will stand before God then in the righteousness of Christ. We will be cloaked in his righteousness. And when God looks at us on that judgment day, no matter how many laws we have broken and how many times we have sinned, if we are in faith, a child of God, he will look at us and he will see Christ's righteousness. He was our substitute in taking our sin and he is our substitute in providing that righteousness for us so that God might look at us one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 26. Go ahead and turn there. 
Romans 3, verses 23 to 26. The Apostle Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ, God the Son, became a willing and sufficient sacrifice for all who believe. He turned aside the wrath of God. And this is what the word propitiation speaks of. That he, Jesus, turned aside the holy and just wrath of God that was meant to destroy sin, our sin. He turned it aside by taking our sin upon himself on the cross, and then the wrath of God was poured out on him. You see, our sin had to be punished. God is just. God is holy. He is loving. He is just. And in order for his justice to be satisfied, sin has to be punished. And so when Christ took our sin upon himself, this is what it means when he was our propitiation, is he deflected, he took that wrath of God that was due us, and he took it upon himself. Because our sin, he took upon himself. And in this manner, our sin is justly punished. And in this single act, in the death of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied. And for us who trust in this work of Christ, Romans 5, 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Peter goes on in verse 24 in our text, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The word translated as die here means to be away from, to depart, be missing, or to cease existing. Christ's substitutionary death prepared or separated believers from the penalty of their sins and condemnation thereof. Romans chapter 8, turn to Romans 8. In the first four verses of Romans 8, Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, the requirements of the law were condemned in Christ when he took sin upon him. So Christ's substitutionary death separated believers. We have died to sin. It has separated us from the penalty of sin. The record of sin that condemns us has been removed. And the Apostle Paul also tells us that you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. This is Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 14. 
You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus paid our debt by taking the penalty of our sin upon himself, freeing us to die to sin, to be separated from our sin, not only from the punishment of our sin, but to die to sin and live unto righteousness. Our justification is accomplished through his substitution and our sanctification is made possible because of his substitution. We are changed. We are new creation. We have been transferred from sinner to saint. We have died to sin and are to live to righteousness. Through his substitution, we have been transferred. Our identity no longer is before God as a sinner, but as a saint. We are in Christ Jesus. No longer slaves of sin, but rather we are slaves of righteousness to do that which pleases God. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are no longer identified in the flesh. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. We see a clear illustration of this reality in Romans chapter 6. Let's jump to Romans chapter 6. Read two passages here. The first one starting in verse 3. Romans 6, 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him again. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look at Paul's words, we might, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or Peter's words, sorry, in our text. It's the same thing that Paul is saying here. Consider ourselves dead to sin, separated from sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Jump down with me to chapter, still in chapter 6, but verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, 
or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So we are no longer identified as sinners. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now saints, are imputed. Our sin is imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. The Westminster Confession of Faith in section 11.3 summarizes, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who are thus justified and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice on their behalf. Christ paid the penalty on our behalf. And Peter continues in verse 24, and by his wounds you have been healed. As we already saw this morning, Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, and in this text is often used as a proof text for those who proclaim that it is always God's will to heal. This quite simply, and I believe provably, is a wrong understanding and application of this verse. R.C. Sproul notes on this verse, if we were to do an exhaustive study on the word heal using a theological dictionary, we would see that the primary reference has nothing to do with being cured of physical disease or ailments. It has to do with being healed of the consequences of sin. When the suffering servant was put before the lash in our stead, the beating left grisly welts on his back that looked like stripes. Those were the stripes of punishment, and by those stripes we escape punishment for sin. Those are the stripes by which we are healed. The healing we experience now because of the atonement is the healing of our souls, the removal of sin's penalty. The physical healing of our body, bodies will be realized only fully in eternity when our now healed souls depart from this mortal and sin-laden body and we are given a new, immortal, perfect body in eternity. So Christ is our substitute. Why did Christ have to become our substitute? Why did he have to stand in our place? Why did we need to be reconciled to God? Verse 25, and our last point, is he is our shepherd. Christ is our shepherd. Verse 25, chapter 2, verse Peter, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Why did he have to stand in our place? Why did he have to be our substitute? For you were straying like sheep. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All you were straying like sheep, 
Jesus says in Matthew 9, 36, that we are like sheep without a shepherd. We were wandering, helpless, blind sinners, straying like sheep without a shepherd, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The word translated as shepherd here can also be translated as pastor. And the word overseer could be bishop. And by using these titles for Christ, Peter identifies him as the protector, leader, the feeder, the caregiver of the flock. In fact, Jesus attributes the title of shepherd to himself. In John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then again in verses 14 and 6 to 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Jesus became our substitute because we were straying like sheep. But now because of his penal, he took our punishment. And substitutionary, he took our place. He was our substitute and atonement. He reconciled us to God. So because of his penal substitutionary atonement, because of this, through repentance and faith, we turn to Christ as our shepherd, our caregiver, and entrust our eternal souls to him. Who we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading and it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is our shepherd. We place our souls into the care of Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. As we look forward to this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and in fact, as Peter said, is being guarded in heaven by God for you. This is why we can trust him as our great shepherd. He protects, he leads, he cares for his flock, for his sheep, his wandering sheep that we are. Because of the gospel, we went astray, but we have now returned to the shepherd. Because of the gospel, because of Christ's work on the cross, we have been placed back into the care of our great shepherd. And this is the comfort for our souls. In this world, we are straying like sheep, following the passions and desires of our flesh. But Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled, to return to our shepherd and our overseer of our souls. And all who are saved come under this care, come under the provision of Christ, come under the protection of this shepherd. So in conclusion, we see as the suffering servant, Jesus Christ has become our standard for how to suffer through unjust persecution and treatment. He became our substitute in taking the punishment for our sin on himself and giving us his righteousness. And he is our shepherd. 
ever caring for his lost sheep for whom he died. And he is reconciling us back to God. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled again this morning as we considered the substitute that you became for us. How in your work on the cross, you took sin upon yourself and you paid the harsh, just penalty for that sin in our place. Lord, we thank you for that and we pray that you would help each one to grow in that trust as we consider you as our shepherd to trust you, Lord, for our care. But Lord, for anyone who may be here or listening to this who may not know you as their shepherd, Lord, we pray that today you would open their hearts, open their eyes, Lord, to see the truth of their need for a Savior, to see that no matter how they try, they will never be able to satisfy the wrath of God by standing before him, but that you did that, Lord, for us. And I pray that you would save sinners as we know that you love to do. And we thank you again for your mighty work on the cross and the mighty work of your substitutionary atonement, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.